Hello, guys, gals, and non-binary pals. Welcome to another episode of Science and Podcast presented by Science and Pictures Magazine. Who's talking to me, you ask? I'm one of your hosts, Madison Dix. And I'm the other one, Jared Adelman. That's us, every week. But this week is a little different. We will still be taking the headache out of peer-reviewed scientific literature, but eh, we're not actually talking about peer-reviewed scientific literature today. We are talking about nonsense that we want to squash. You might remember our squashing nonsense segments from our earlier episodes, um, where we take something that is bad science and we tell you why. This week, we're going to do that with a full episode. So buckle in. There's going to be a lot of nonsense. We're going to squash it. Um, Should we try and say it at the same time again? Oh, okay. Yes. This week, we will be Squashing nonsense. nonsense. That sounded great. Don't on... so slow. <laughs> <laughs> I figure the slower I am, the more accurate we can be. <laughs> no, I get impatient. <laughs> oh crap! Okay, cater to your ADHD. Got it. All right, three, two, one. Squashing nonsense. Squashing nonsense. Well, I did it way too fast that time. Well, anyway, the nonsense we'll be squashing this week revolves around the Netflix movie Seaspiracy, which is very popular. Very inaccurate. <laughs> and not a documentary, so thank you for calling it a movie. I will not be calling it a documentary. It is not one. <laughs> and we'll talk all about why. Um, but first, we're going to start off, as per usual, with our little fun facts corner. Jared, would you like to go first? Sure. Um, so this is uh, kind of coattailing off the previous Fun Science Friday episode we did on that lecture about the uh, spider music webs. I was looking around for other things that happened on that day, and... The, uh, kind of something amazing because it, we're finding out that a lot of snakes are able to move in the way they do not because of the microstructure of their scales which is actually remarkably similar despite how they might look from like back to belly but because of this single molecule layer thick of layer of fat really yeah so That's they really interesting. indeed they, they've only tested a few snakes so far but in uh they tested a tree snake a, a ground moving snake and also a burrowing snake and the tree snake and the uh, ground-moving snake both have the uh, complex layer of fat, even though they were all a single layer thick, in all the right places. Meanwhile, the burrowing snake had that complex layer all over its body, and it's the only one that would actually need it. So um, a lot of attention has been given to how snake scales look under a microscope, but it turns out that that might not, not actually matter as much as the single molecule uh, layer thick level of fat on their body. Love it. I love those kind of facts because it just goes to show like scientific fact um, is very rare. <laughs> <laughs> Mostly we have scientific um, hypotheses and theories. Um, and the great thing about science is we never look at something and say that's definitely true all the time. Nobody tested anymore. We, you know, it doesn't happen as much as it used to, but still happens too much. Yeah. But yes. But like the purpose of science is to keep looking for more options and more explanations and not to settle for something that seems true, but to actually find out to the best of human ability what is actually going on. Absolutely. It does run into a little bit of a problem when like in in a lot of respects, we've realized that we don't like have like the final say on things. And so for things that we might not know much about explanations tend to follow the rule of what's called parsimony, which is might also be heard of Occam's razor, but we tend to follow the simplest explanation because there isn't evidence to make more complicated ones make sense, but in this case, there is that. 
Yeah, there is now. Yeah. Science is always advancing. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Like anytime I say that, like, this thing is true, there's always a little bit in the back of my head that I'm like, for now. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of my favorite things about science. Uh, just that a theory can never truly become a fact because a theory is just our interpretation on a reality that we can observe. Exactly. So, I mean, should we rename our fun facts corner to fun theories corner? <laughs> <laughs> fun happenings corner, or yes. Maybe we should. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, my fun theory <laughs> this week um, is also from the book that I have just finished, Lessons from Plants. Um, no, it's not. I'm making this up because I didn't bring one. <laughs> <laughs> I did not bring a fun fact this week. I was too focused on tearing apart Seaspiracy. Not a bad thing. So should we dive into it? <laughs> Let's do it. All right. Your so, fact is that Seaspiracy is awful. That is a fact. That is objective opinion. fact. Yes. Okay. So, I mean, there are... First, let's introduce what Seaspiracy is to anyone who might not have seen it. Um, and by the way, I do not in any way recommend that you have to watch it to listen to this episode. You don't. Oh, like you made me do. I made Jared watch it because, you know, we're the ones who are talking to you about it. But you do not need to watch it. It is a waste of 90 minutes of your life. Yes. I made the sacrifice for you, listeners. Yes. So the only good thing I can say about it um, is it does bring attention to the issue of overfishing. Um, and, you know, Netflix has 200 million subscribers. So it's getting that, that issue some light and some attention from those people. However, the way that Seaspiracy talks about overfishing is just riddled with inaccuracies. So much of it is just blatantly false and blatantly just one person's opinion. Um, and then it's labeled as a documentary, which is just drives me bananas. <laughs> um, but you can find it in the documentary section of Netflix, which I actually wrote them an email asking them to take it out of the documentary did section. Really? Oh, I love yeah, that. I did. <laughs> that one um and this movie is on top 10 lists in netflix in several countries including the u.s so it's getting a lot of attention uh, okay yes um so if you have watched it i'm glad you're here and i'm glad you care about overfishing but we're gonna tell you the ways to actually address the problem because the main problem i have with this movie is that it says that the number one best thing you can do to address the problem of overfishing is to stop eating seafood and become vegan. That's just simply not true. So it, that's an individual level solution. It's something you can do to, you know, calm your mind, make yourself feel better about who you are as a person, but it doesn't really help address the global issue because not everybody in the world has the resources and the connections to just stop eating seafood. Absolutely. And it's yeah. just because you yourself stop, not to say that anything you do is futile, but like, no, I shouldn't. Okay. What I was going to say is that they're going to keep fishing regardless of whether the single person does. I don't think I should have said that. No, that's correct. Oh. Yeah. They are okay, going to well. keep fishing regardless <laughs> of whether you individually eat seafood or not. We're it's just not out to squash happen. anyone's hopes. Like, if you want to give up seafood yourself, you're well within your rights to. But, like, what Madison is trying to say that I should just let her say is that some people can't. Some people can't. Actually, a lot of people. Yes. Um, because, well, I'm just going to come right out and say it. 90% of people globally living under the poverty line depend on the ocean as their primary source of protein. 
And they're living in islands and places where there is no agriculture. There is no impossible burgers. <laughs> and actually, the way that they are eating locally and from local subsistence fishing is super sustainable. Super sustainable. So villainizing those people is just absolute bullshit. <laughs> Which was done so... Within the first 15 minutes, they were spouting just anti-Asian rhetoric across the board as if like, oh, this is entirely their fault. Oh, it's so bad. Okay. But before we get into that, let's talk a little bit about okay. um, where we are coming from and why our information is more trustworthy. Because <laughs> um, we are also just two individuals. So in order to squash the nonsense of seaspiracy, um, I got most of my sources uh, from actually a Vox article. Uh, VOX.com that was written by a very, very well-esteemed marine biologist and fisheries researcher named Daniel Pauly. Have you ever heard of him? No, actually. I probably should have. All right. So Daniel Pauly is incredible. He has over 300 peer-reviewed scientific articles published. Boy. All pertaining to marine biology and fisheries science. So he knows um, stuff. Also, I, like, I, I want to cover one of his articles soon and I'm not going to lie, part of the reason I want to do that is because, you know how when you're citing a scientist in an article, you do their last name, comma, their first name? Y yes. Or last name, comma, the first letter of their first name. Where's this going? Polly D is oh, how he's Jesus cited. Christ. Polly D. Yeah, buddy. Oh my God. You just dug up not memories that, that have been buried for years. I can't believe I used oh. to watch that show. Yeah, anyway. so he's not the Poly D from Jersey Shore. He's the Poly D who has a master's and several PhDs studying fisheries science. Including and, fist pumping. Uh, what? Including fist pumping. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so a little bit about Daniel Polly because he's amazing. Um, so after he got his PhD and his master's, he worked for 15 years in Manila, Philippines at the International Center for Living and Aquatic Resources Management. Um, so the Philippines, there are a lot of people there who do very sustainable local subsistence fishing, and he was working with them to develop new methods for estimating fishing populations to basically measure how sustainable the fishing there was. So he helped design, implement, and perfect methods of using length frequency data instead of the age of, of a fish to estimate the parameters of fishing statistics. That sounds like a much quality. better measure. Yes, very much better. Um, not all fish have the same longevity. Uh, no. The age of fish is just not not useful. Um, like when he started his career, fishery science was in its infancy. Um, he's actually, he is the person who developed the concept of shifting baselines. Do you know what shifting baselines are? No, what is that? So shifting baselines is the idea that we cannot measure the health of a fish population by comparing it to um, how they, like, basically, so to measure whether a population of fish is healthy, um, you have to compare it to a baseline of, you know, what is a healthy population? What is a healthy number for that species? And he is the one who said that actually has shifted. The norms that we are comparing populations to um, were taken in the 1970s and 80s when overfishing was already a big issue. So actually, we have to, to make a better study of um, what is healthy populations for those fish. We have to look further back. And because science doesn't go that far back, we have to talk to people 
um, indigenous people who are actually connected to the land who fish and talk to them about what they're seeing now versus what the fish populations were like before industrial fishing became a thing. Wow. That's, yeah. it's honestly incredible that this wasn't done sooner, like, like incorporating local perspective. I know it's, it's disappointing, but I'm not surprised uh, because of colonialism. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so anyway, he's very, very awesome. Um, he also, <laughs> he created Fish Base. Have you ever been to Fish Base? I have been to Fish Base. I used it a lot when I worked at the uh, Unnamed Aquarium that you do. Uh-huh. Yeah. So Fish Base is an online encyclopedia of fish and fisheries information. Um, it has 30,000 species in it. And he made that. That's incredible. Yeah. He's awesome. Um, yeah. So, and then in case you're still questioning Daniel Polly's uh, credentials, just a couple awards that he's uh, earned for protecting the environment. Um, he was in, in 2003, he was listed in the top 10 of Scientific American's 50 people uh, protecting the environment. Um, we know Scientific American is a pretty good source. Mm -hmm. The New York Times labeled him as an iconoclast for going against the industrial fishing industry. Love it. So people saying that he's like one of them, you know, we can't trust him because he's, you know, he's he's with the fisheries. That's not... <laughs> Not accurate. Yeah, what also? Um, what does that even mean? Like, <laughs> I know. Um, so he's also won the International Cosmos Prize, um, the Volvo Environment Prize, the Excellent in Ecology Prize, the Ted Danson Ocean Hero Award, the Raymond Margaleff Prize in Ecology and Environmental Sciences, the Nirenberg Prize for Science, um, the Public Interest Prize from the Scripps Institution of Oceanography. I could go on. Yeah, and for anyone who's just listening now, I had to cut Madison's listing of awards down to like an hour. <laughs> yeah so like he's widely recognized all over the world from lots of different organizations so he's not like in the pocket of like one billionaire or anything like that like this is this is a very credible scientific source darn tootin yeah all right so let's compare that to um the people who made this uh movie what is even his name like i didn't even <laughs> bother to remember it all right so the two people who created seaspiracy uh, their oh, names are Cliff Anderson and Ali Tabritzi. They are both American. They are both white. They are both cis het males. Wait, why was he speaking with a British accent? Am I remembering that wrong? You are remembering that wrong. He's American. Really? Although he might have just sounded pretentious. That was probably what I was hearing. Anyway, keep going. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in my research of these individuals, they both come from... Um, generational wealth meaning they come from families with real deep pockets a spoon that is silver um they are both vegan and they basically their mission is to convince the world that they have already made the choices themselves that will uh fix the world's problems they're basically trying to say that they are the solution to the world's problems which they are not that's really very much what i got from the first 15 minutes of the movie which is basically just like he was trying to present himself as like what am I trying to say? It was as if it's he was so trying to list his yes, or like listing his life experience as his own credentials, which is masking a complete lack thereof. Exactly. Like Kip Anderson, he made his first air quote documentary um, in 2014. Um, it's called Cowspiracy, and that like really launched him into the public eye. But the um, he was able to create that film because he was able to fund his own film company which he's called Ohm Films. Ugh. Ohm as in um, the Sanskrit word that means everything is connected. He is not Indian. So that is cultural appropriation. 
Oh boy. Um, and that continues uh, because he is also a certified uh, Kundalini yoga teacher. So he makes a lot of money um, off of a practice that um, basically we should be giving that money to Indian people who actually created that practice. Um, and uh, yeah, he's just so self-serving and conceited and so white. And um <laughs> That's Basically, a lot of everything here. he does is just riddled with white saviorism, and it's bad. <laughs> <laughs> it's bad. Um, like every the solution to all of the world's problems in every single one of his films is veganism. And as we already discussed, that is not accessible to the majority of the world's population, literally because of white colonialism and capitalism, which is everything he represents. Yeah, and also can cause a lot of environmental destruction depending on who's doing it as well. Not yeah. to knock veganism, but, like, it's not perfect. It's not perfect. Like, just like any other dietary choice, you have to do your research in order to find sustainable sources for your food. Looking at you, palm oil. It's not like a one-stop solution. Everything that's plant-based is going to be sustainable. It's not how it works. Not at all. No. Although, you know, going vegan, it can be really good for you. Um, if you can afford it and you live in an area where, like, you're across the street from a Whole Foods and you have a bunch of money, sure, go vegan. But you're not saving the world. <laughs> Absolutely. And again, like, not I'm not knocking dietary styles of any kind, but, like, you can't ignore mm -hmm. the stuff that does happen. Yeah. I mean, like, <laughs> for any vegans who are listening right now who are just like, you hate vegans. Guess what, guys? I am vegan. <laughs> <laughs> I remember you were telling me uh, one time at the uh, Unnamed Aquarium you, you you work at, someone who was vegan was, was telling you about how they were feeling so good about using their coral toothpaste. Oh, yeah. That was yep. you, right? <laughs> yep, that was me. <laughs> <laughs> so that's an example of a vegan product um, that is not actually vegan. No, because coral is an animal. <laughs> Coral is an animal. They did not know that. They were like, it's just we're using the rocks from the ocean. Um, do you mean the foundation of 25% of all ocean life that is currently <laughs> incredibly endangered? Okay. Yeah. Uh, anyway, that's not what we're talking about today. <laughs> <laughs> so <clears throat> that just gives you a, a taste of where we're coming from versus where the makers of this film are coming from. Their um, own butts. Yeah, so I'm just going to real quick start us off with a quote from the article. So this is directly from Daniel Polly's mouth, and I think he says very well, summarizes very well our issues with this movie that we're going to talk about moving forward. Okay. The film includes all the damning evidence and dramatic footage required to make an important point that industrial fishing is, throughout the world, a too often out of control and sometimes criminal enterprise that needs to be rigged, reined in and regulated. In this, it reinforces and shares with a wide audience a knowledge that is widespread in the ocean conservation community, but not in the public at large. So that's the pros. However, overall, conspiracy does more harm than good. It takes a very serious issue, the devastating impact of industrial fisheries on ocean life, and then it undermines it with an avalanche of falsehoods. It also employs questionable interviewing techniques, uses anti-Asian tropes, and blames the ocean conservation community, i.e. the very NGOs trying to fix things, rather than the industrial companies actually causing the problem. Most importantly, it twists the narrative about ocean destruction to support the idea that we, the Netflix subscribers of the world, can save ocean biodiversity by turning vegan. In doing so, Seaspiracy undermines its tremendous potential value to persuade people to work together and push for change in policy and rules that will rein in an industry which often breaks the law with impunity. 
I feel like that's the most important part, is, like, industrial fishing is such a goddamn problem, but, like, this is not the way to go about stopping it. And it needs to be stopped, but, like, this isn't the way. So, the way to actually stop it is to take civic action, to use our voice to contact our representatives, to support these NGOs, which are fighting for regulation in other countries as well, um, and to talk to people about doing more research about the products that they consume and using their voice to push for things that are good for the environment, not just choosing to go vegan and then, you know, pretending to be above everyone else. Yeah. Actually working with everyone else. Also take a look at uh, the things that are going to be coming out from our own uh, parent organization, Science and Pictures, which does talk a lot about this stuff, but for sharks in specific. Absolutely. All right. You ready to dive into this nonsense? Um, We've been waiting, but I think I'm ready to dive. All right. So the first thing I think we should talk about is Seaspiracy's questionable interviewing techniques. I don't know why I thought you were going to say title, but okay. <laughs> okay, well, actually, we could talk about the title first, because they missed a um, big opportunity there. With with conspiracy? Yeah, so... Yes. They called it Seaspiracy, but the word C is already in the word, and they could have just changed the spelling and called it conspiracy, like S-E-A at the end, and that would have been so much better. Yeah. I get on some level that they were, I'm guessing they were piggybacking off cowspiracy, but like, really? Really? It just goes to show how not deeply they think about things. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So there are actually a lot of like really awesome people who are interviewed in the film. Um, for example, like Sylvia Earle. Jonathan Balcombe, I remember. Yep, exactly. Um, but they completely twist their words. So mm-hmm. like the actual credible people that they interview, they asked them very specific questions and did not really tell them. They basically misled them about the ethos of the film, about what they were trying to do. And then they took their quotes out of context. So like Sylvia Earle, for example, is like really mad about how her words were twisted to support something that she doesn't actually support. That, wow. Okay. Yeah, I'm glad that she came out against it because she did not seem like she was against anything he was saying. Yep. And then on the other side of the spectrum, we have their terrible interviews with um, people from NGOs and people at the head of corporations. Um, And (laughs) so their tactics for trying to get interviews with the people actually causing the problem was just like so elementary. Sir, 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 you're killing things. Tell me why. Please, let me shove this microphone in your face and this camera. Saying, hi, you're killing the ocean. Want to talk to us about it? Obviously not. (laughs) Why you got to put them right on the defensive right from the get-go? How is that going to stop? How? How how is that going to solve things? No one's going to want to talk to you when you come at them like that. No. No. Like, that's documentary filmmaking 101, is you want to, at first, form a connection with the person that you're interviewing so that they'll be real with you. So, like, a much more effective strategy would have been coming at them like, hi, we really support your organization and want to, you know, talk to you more about it. That's how you get in the door, not yelling at them on the street with a camera. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's a problem. And then the people that they actually were able to interview from the organizations they're villainizing. (laughs) So, like, there's a lot of problems with it. But one of my favorite examples, do you remember the interview, um, the guy from the Dolphin Safe Tuna program? Um, The guy with the long white hair? Yeah. Yes. So he was representing in the film Dolphin Safe Tuna, but he actually never worked for them. He worked for their parent company, the Earth Island Institute, and he had recently been fired. Oh, God. This is (laughs) Blackfish all over again. Yeah. So, like, he was really mad at his employer. So, of course, he was ready to talk (laughs) Like, (laughs) 
But he mostly talked about um, the Dolphin Safe Tuna program, which again, he was never directly involved with. So everything he was saying about them was just pure conjecture. Oh boy. Yeah. Oh, absolute boy. Yeah. Um, and even he, like, you know, he was talking about the problems with enforcing, you know, regulations, which are real. Indeed. And, you know, there are real problems with the spotters, you know, the people watching for problems on these boats, you know, being targeted and all of that kind of stuff. And no, we don't have watchers on every single boat. But the reality is the Dolphin Safe Tuna program has actually saved a lot of dolphins. Of course, it's not perfect. Nothing is. But not being perfect is not a crime. <laughs> Can we also, real quick, on, on on the same vein, talk about that one scene where he's, like, crouched down on a boat saying, I can't understand how this observation thing is possible. And then in the very next scene, he goes out on a watchdog boat that goes and finds someone and is like, oh, this works. Like I know. it's. Do you not see the irony there? <laughs> he's literally like, this never works, obviously. And then he goes out and does it, and he's like, oh, yeah, this works. And he also villainizes the Dolphin Safe program um, for getting revenue from their labeling, but like they're an NGO, like, so they need revenue in order to hire these watchdog organizations. They need, they need money to hire people to do the regulating. So like, it's not like they're an organization who's just trying to line their pockets. All of the money that they get goes directly into improving their ability to enforce their standards. Yeah, why don't you pay for it instead of making a bullshit movie? Truly. Truly. Like, these NGOs need more money. <laughs> they're not They're not rich people. Um, so that's a problem. Oh, did we say what an NGO is? Oh, an NGO is a non-governmental organization. So they're not affiliated with the government, and because of that... Um, they are not corrupt by the government. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. Um, so we could probably talk this whole episode about the problems with all their interviews, but like, there's a lot of other problems we need to get to. Do you have anything else you want to say about the interviews? <laughs> the one where he's mansplaining plastics research to that plastic scientist hit the most of me. <laughs> That's a good point. That's another problem with his interview tactics is he comes in and tries to tell the people he's interviewing what, what he wants them to say instead of asking them questions and listening and then taking that into account. He literally, before making this movie, had an exact idea of what he wanted to say in the picture he wanted to paint, and he didn't let anyone else's opinions or actual experience and research change that. There's an actual word for that in the uh, academia. It's called pathological science. Oh my god, I love that. Mm -hmm. Please explain. Um, pathological science is something that you go in with such a bias to prove that what you think is happening, that... You ignore what science is for in the first place, which is rooting out bad ideas in favor of ones that better explain what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. That's what they did. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So moving forward um, from these mansplaining honestly, there's going to be a lot of beeps in this episode. Because I'm not... <laughs> really is. I've already done two, so go ahead. Great. All right. So my biggest beef, the biggest piece of nonsense, I think, in this entire movie is all of the anti-Asian tropes. It is blatant. Yeah. Like seriously. Like, it's so bad. You can tell that from the outset, he wanted to blame Asian people specifically because where did he go to spy on problematic fisheries? Exclusively. Only Asian countries. Yeah. Exclusively. Not to exclusively. mention shark finning and the consumption of shark fins is not limited to Asia. It's, it's not. No, it's not. And also like, Shark finning is literally a dog whistle for anti-Asian hate. Like, yeah. when people hear shark finning, they associate it with Asian people. 
but the shark finning industry is not the main driver of shark extinction. Not by a long shot. Not to mention the United States actively import shark fins to be sent to places like the ones that were talked about in this film. That's correct. Yeah. Um, and here's my biggest beef with blaming shark finning for the death of shark species worldwide. Um, shark finning and shark fin soup are ancient practices that actually started in the Song Dynasty in the year 960, thousands of years ago. Um, so if shark finning and shark fin soup are the cause of shark population declines, um, then why have the population declines only started in uh, the last 70 years? Yeah, it would be like myself, a white person, going to like an Australian Aborigine person and being like, you can't hunt the food that you're eating to, to survive because I would feel bad about it. Exactly. Like the real cause of all of these problems that this film is trying to address are the increased industrialization of the fishing industry, which is a direct result of Western capitalism. Yep, 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 yep. So Asian people and their ancient practices are not the cause of this modern problem. It's total bullshit. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, so in order to back this up, I actually did some research and I did find a peer-reviewed scientific article in Nature Ooh. that was published in 2021. Um, and that article found that since 1970, the global abundance of oceanic sharks and rays has declined by 71%, owing to an 18-fold increase in relative industrial fishing pressure. So not shark fin soup. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. that's just total, total anti-Asian anti propaganda. Does not line up with the real world data. Not at all. Because he doesn't go to science. Not at all. No. Um... Yeah. Looking and at so, you, Lottie Dan. Sorry. Keep going. There's all of this footage in the film of like an Asian person like brandishing a knife and like Asian people like closing their doors to the, like like the film people. Like he specifically goes to these countries to villainize Asian people. Mm -hmm. Like, and that you might be saying right now, if you're listening at home, well, maybe he did that because the Asian countries are the biggest problem when it comes to industrial fishing. Guess what? No. <laughs> Pretty sure it's us. <laughs> yeah. So the biggest exporters of seafood are the US, European Union, and Norway. <laughs> oh, we're, China wait, and Japan are up Norway? there too, but we can't ignore that the only reason that China and Japan are up there is because of Western capitalism. It's because of the pressure to compete with the US and the EU. <laughs> it's almost like capitalism is inherently toxic. Oh yeah, it's almost like capitalism is a problem and uh, not the solution. Um, also, the highest importers of seafood are the U.S. and the EU by far. The EU being the European Union, by the way. We're also a country that wastes a literal third of our food. So keep exactly. that in mind, friends. And um, once again, these documentarians, lol, no, these filmmakers <laughs> are from the U.S. So why didn't they uh, do their, um, their filming and address it to the problems with the U.S. fisheries? Because or maybe the European Union, which is their heritage. But or like even Russia, for God's sake. Why Why only brown people? But Madison, that would create a less biased viewpoint, so we can have that. Yeah, if they, if they showed white people being the problem, then the white people watching might recognize that they're part of the problem, and we can't have that. <laughs> they she did. Said, with sarcasm. Yeah, they did slightly do it with that, I think it was a Finnish whale uh, hunter at, at the end of the movie, but even then he was like, this guy alone has a point. Okay, so listen. Um... The one white country that they went to to look at problems with fishing 
is literally the Faroe Islands, which is an indigenous culture. Jesus Christ. Yes. Oh, boy. Like, you can compare the people of the Faroe Islands to um, the Inuits in Alaska. And they still painted them as, like, demons based on the footage they, they showed of hunting the whales. Like, this is, yeah. this is their culture. Yeah, so that practice, the Faroe Islands practice of whaling, is also thousands of years old. And it is very well regulated. They are not making an impact on whale populations. They they like, they made a point to say that in the in the movie. This is yeah, sustainable. And then he but... used that to say that sustainability is causing as much pain as possible for as long as possible, which is not the definition of saying sustainability. No, it's not. No, it is not. Remember um, how we remember like, how we spent 15 minutes of fill time trying to define sustainability? Yeah. I mean there is so there is problems with the term sustainability because like lots of corporations use it for greenwashing and it's not like the issue with the word sustainable is that there is no agreed upon definition and so it kind of can be tossed around willy-nilly, sort of like the word green. Yeah. I personally um, see it as like net zero, but that's yeah. still the point. But you can look at how individual organizations define sustainability and then decide based on their definition whether you agree with their definition. Yeah. That research yeah. also should be more readily available to people, but that's, again, part of the problem. Yeah, for sure. Like, greenwashing is a problem, but organizations actually working on sustainability are not the problem. No. <laughs> but we'll get to that later. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay. Um. So another big problem I have with the anti-Asian tropes um, is that they never mention all of the millions of Asian people who rely on fishing for their livelihood. Um, instead, they say anyone who eats fish, you know, is part of the problem. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, there's about 1 billion people globally who are living below the poverty line who rely on the ocean for their main source of food, and they do fish sustainably. Yeah, which is, it's not, it's not even a hard thing to do. Well, it is and it isn't, but I'm sure we'll get into that. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> like, fishing is really important for people in developing countries. It provides, like, the majority of their employment, their nutrition, their food security. And overfishing is a huge problem for those people. Like, so many organizations focus on the impacts for the ocean. And yes, we definitely need to be taking into consideration how these things are impacting all of the other animals we share the planet with. But... How about the 1 billion people it's impacting? Industrial fishing is literally taking food away from people who need it. Not people who, you know, want to eat a bite of it at a wedding and then throw the rest in the trash. Honestly. Yeah. Like, in the past 20 years, the percentage of fish stocks that are collapsing has nearly doubled. And that's mostly impacting people. Not yeah. the big fat cat in the room. No, no. So, um, and then another thing um, about shark fin soup, um, one of the main things that they say that you can do to, like, protect sharks is, like, to say no to shark fin soup when it's offered to you. That's super rude. Don't do that. <laughs> um, like, if you're being offered shark fin soup, that's a sign that the person who's offering it to you really respects you. Um, and again... Shark finning is not the main cause of shark population declines. So yeah. it is not. It if you want to learn more about that, feel free to check out. There's an article coming out from our host, um, our host organization, Science and Pictures. And so we will talk all about that. Yeah. Yeah. As an organization. Well, are we an organization, Jared? Are we I, a company? What are we? 
we're two people in not even the same room thinking of recording. Well, we, as in me and Jared and Becca, who has created Science and Pictures, we firmly oh. stand against Asian hate. Yes. We firmly support Asian communities. We do not blame them for these problems. And we recognize that the root of these problems is Western capitalism, colonialism, and white saviorism. So let's stop that. Don't let my uh, jokey tone uh, disguise the fact that I did not know that was the way you were taking this point. I also stand by everything you just said. What? It. I felt like my jokey tone was distracting from what you were trying to say. Anyway. Oh, no, that's just our tone. Okay. But I, I do think it's important to say that, you know, just really clearly. Um, because we do make a lot of jokes, you and I, but we, we really, really, truly, deeply support the Asian community. Yes. <laughs> I, I just said that laughing. I mean it. I mean it. <laughs> Well, I just laughed too, so I took the pressure off you. Jared and I both laugh for many reasons. Anyway. There was um, a dog digging its nose into my hip, which currently is making me laugh right now. But anyway. Oh, dog, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Moving forward, um, let's talk a little bit about how Seaspiracy has decided to blame NGOs and organizations trying to fix things and never mentions the name of any of the industrial companies actually causing the problem. They did do that, didn't they? They did. Yeah. Um, so the people who are killing the earth have names and addresses. <laughs> um, none of whom were mentioned in this film, probably because they get money from them. So who's corrupt now? Oh, oh, she got you, dude. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, like, the main one that I really want to defend is the Marine Stewardship Council. So you might have seen their labels on seafood, and they are one of the most trustworthy, they are, in my opinion, the most trustworthy labeling if you're looking for seafood that is actually caught sustainably. Why would you say so, that? So the Marine Stewardship Council, this is their definition of sustainably. This is their standard. Sustainability to them means leaving enough fish in the ocean, respecting habitats, and ensuring people who depend on fish can maintain their livelihoods. Okay, I'm with it. Yeah. That's good. <laughs> um, and the fisheries that they certify are actually doing a pretty good job. Like, no, it's not perfect. Um, but they're really working toward it and supporting fisheries that are certified by the Marine Stewardship Council helps them improve their regulation. Yeah. Um, so also literally in the film... <laughs> Um, they said that sustainability was prolonging suffering. That's their definition of it, which is obviously incorrect. Mm -hmm. And he literally, I'm going to take out a quote from the film. I began to question whether sustainable seafood could even exist. I have looked long and hard, seriously, at trying to find an example of where large-scale extraction of wildlife is sustainable. Obviously, you didn't look that hard. <laughs> <laughs> So, like, there are very sustainable fisheries out there. Um, for example, the fishery that collects um, cardinal tetras in the Amazon. Oh, good old Project Piaba. Exactly. So here's an example of extracting wildlife at a large scale in a sustainable way. In the Amazon, there's a rainy season and a dry season. During the rainy season, fish species, their populations explode literally by the hundreds, like percentage-wise, because the river floods and covers an additional like 4% of the Amazon forest floor, and there's so much more space and so much more food for all of the animals during that season. But then during the dry season, 90% of those fish die naturally. So the fishery down there only collects fish at the transition between the rainy and the dry season, 
and they only collect fish that are trapped in pools, i.e. fish that would naturally die within a few weeks. And the fish that they collect, these cardinal tetras, in the wild would have about a one-year life. But by collecting them in this way and shipping them sustainably um, for the pet trade, literally those fish can live up to five years. Ah, so a 500% increase in lifespan. Exactly. Um, so there's no impact on population numbers. They're literally collecting fish that would already die because of the boom and bust population cycle. And also supporting that fishery helps support the indigenous people who manage it sustainably. Because guess what? The alternative to that fishery for those people would be cattle ranching. How do you like that, vegans? Yeah, or illegal logging. Yeah. So, and cattle ranching is the driver of 80% of deforestation in the Amazon, which we all know is bad. Um, and, uh, logging is the other 20%, so, <laughs> um, yeah. Also, Mr. Uh, fish can feel pain and fish suffer. Have you ever drowned in a puddle for a series of weeks? I know. It's, it's just one of those big claims that is just absolutely false. Like, yeah. <laughs> I looked long and hard to find an example. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. He did in his, uh, uh, I forgot my own word, pathological science brain. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, such a liar. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you can actually, um, you can find NGOs that are super trustworthy. I personally definitely recommend the Marine Stewardship Council, but it's up to you. You know, what is important to you ethically for the food that you eat? You can find mission statements for these NGOs and you can decide for yourself what you agree with. Yeah. They're not all bad. <laughs> They're all different. The world is not black and white. Exactly. All right. So next, I want to tackle some more just specifically false claims that are just absolutely based on nothing. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So in the film Seaspiracy, it is claimed that all fish will be gone by 2048. All. 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 Wow. All. So this claim is a misinterpretation of a research paper that has been redacted for 10 years. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. So in their, like, uh, oh, what's the section at the bottom where they talk about what's next? Discussion? Can you remind me? Thank you. In their discussion section, um, the authors of this paper suggested that by 2048, all of the world's exploited fish populations would be depleted by 2048. Oh. I mean, is it really surprised that they didn't understand nuance? Yeah. So their <laughs> definition of depleted in the article um, is yield less than 10% of their historically highest catches. So the author suggested that fishery, fish populations that were already low would be much lower by 2048. These filmmakers decided that that meant there will be no fish by 2048. Again, no nuance whatsoever. No nuance. Just completely false. Like, the paper was redacted because the way that things were worded could be misread. But, like, I don't even know where these two guys were able to find this article to cite it. Because I was just it thinking that. I was everywhere. just thinking that. Yeah. They probably found it from a blog post. Yeah. <laughs> so bad. Um, Lord knows they didn't use Sci-Hub. Yeah. So, like, there are thousands of fish populations in the world um, right now that are considered collapsed by that definition. They're at about 10% of the historically high catches. Um, but they're not gone, and they can recover. Um, and what they need to recover is fisheries management. So stock rebuilding, science-based fisheries management, a lot of which is already happening and things are improving. Yeah. Yeah. On top of things, making marine protected areas. 
you know, in places that they actually serve a function. Oh, so glad you mentioned that. Um, so in, um, <laughs> in the film, uh, they claimed that, let me find it real quick. Marine protected areas are not effective and should be discontinued because most of them still allow fishing. Yeah, but they allow fishing in a way that actually benefits the entire community. They allow local subsistence fishing and science-based fisheries management. I feel like every single one of the points that he's trying to make, like, has just, like, that little grain of truth to it, which is that, like, yes, not all marine protected areas do what they're supposed to, but so many of them do and are improving. Yes. And they're incredibly important. Like, the 30 by 30 initiative to get 30% of our oceans protected by 2030 is really important, and we should not be telling people that it's bullshit because it's not. Marine protected areas have shown time and time again, even the ones that still allow fishing really help boost the resilience of the ecosystems they protect. Yeah. So even MPAs that allow fishing, they see after just two years of the additional protections, the number of fish on average in those areas increases by 90%. What? Yeah. So MPAs they can be better managed, yes. But <laughs> just because something isn't perfect doesn't mean we need to write it off. If we did that, we would write off literally everything. Like yeah. we would just kill ourselves. <laughs> Again, I don't mean to laugh, but like the, the, the absurdity of saying we shouldn't do anything just because it's not gonna do as much as you wanted to is just it's laughable. Like it's so pouty. It's like it's not perfect, so I'm not doing it. Like <laughs> neither is veganism, bud. Yeah. <laughs> Oi, okay. Um, so like MPAs have limits that prevent overfishing. Overfishing is the problem, not fishing as a whole. So just because MPAs, marine protected areas, allow fishing does not mean that all of this industrial overfishing is happening there no matter what. Yeah. It's just not the case. Not to mention completely cutting a human off from the environment is a problem in itself. Yeah. Uh, marine protected areas also help protect um, indigenous populations that rely on fishing for food, which is really important. If yeah. marine protected areas went into an area and said, no one's allowed to fish here anymore, the people who lived there would die. Yeah. And even in situations where they have to do that, they actually paid the local people to do the job that they're banning them to do. Exactly. Exactly. And even like in areas in developed countries, there are like the fishing that is allowed is still really important. Like, for example, George's Bank. That's off the coast of New England and Nova Scotia. Um so before that fishery was regulated, like they were able to go there and just like basically take all of the fish. So it was heavily fished for centuries. And you might have heard populations of cod, haddock, flounder, those like really popular New England fish species, their numbers plummeted until several MPAs were established literally in the Georgia's Bank region. And now those populations have increased. And now those fish, their populations are going up. Love to see it. So like... Why are we attacking the people who are trying to help? Because his way is the only way. My way or the highway, right? I guess so. Oi. All right. You all could see the face that Madison just made. <laughs> She's mad. <laughs> She's mad. It's I'm it. mad. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's just this kind of black and white thinking, like you said, Jared, without nuance, that just, it villainizes people instead of uniting people and like helping people work together at the community level to solve these problems. Like hate is not the solution. It's just no, not. It's not. It's not. All right. So Seuspiracy makes the claim 
that 48% of the world's catch, as in all species that are caught by fisheries, is discarded. Mm-hmm. 48%. That seems um, high. No. The fact is, discards are about 10% of the world's catch. Hmm. 10%, not 48. Can't multiply that by five, bud. Yeah. And um, this lie, um, I really don't like because it makes that 10% seem really low. Uh, bycatch and discard is is a huge problem. 10% is bad. Oh, yeah, um, of course. When you compare it to 48, it seems really low. <laughs> yeah. It's like what you did to me in the last episode with the... Uh, I, I think you thought there were a trillion bugs when there were like 45 million, and I was just yeah. like, oh, you ruined it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Set up a, a real false comparison there. Um, so like the fact that 10% of catch is discarded is a huge problem because billions of people are food insecure. Yes. So we shouldn't just be throwing perfectly good food dead back into the ocean. We should not. We should not. Um, so the 48% that they cite is actually the total bycatch rate. So that's the number of things that are caught by fishermen that just were not intended. But most things that are caught as bycatch are still taken to market. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. So most bycatch still ends up being consumed. Um, and bycatch is this whole other set of problems. Um, there's a lot of stuff that can be done to reduce bycatch. Um, so like... For example, sea turtles are a species that gets caught a lot in nets. Uh, a really great solution to that is something called a TED, or turtle exclusionary device, which is basically a hatch in the net that allows the turtles to get out. So, <laughs> can, we, can, we just, can we just pause it for a second to appreciate the naming of that thing? Ted. <laughs> just the turtle exclusion device. It sounds so very mean in concept, but then when you look at what it really... I'm sorry. Oh, I'm you're gonna, right. Really Turtle exclusionary device. That sounds really rude, doesn't it? It really does. <laughs> but I really think about... I'm sorry. I went off the rails again. That's okay. Um, but anyway, like there are other solutions to bycatch that are not just stop fishing. Yeah. <laughs> um, another really... So one of the main reasons that bycatch is such a problem is because of the type of fishing gear that's used by, again, these corporations, industrial fisheries. So industrial fisheries... The biggest driver of bycatch is bottom trawling, and bottom trawlers are these giant nets that are weighted down to be dragged along the bottom, and many of them are literally a football field wide, so of course that's going to catch everything. Yeah. Um, so that's bad. You want to avoid that. The best way to ensure that the seafood you eat does not have any bycatch is to choose fish species that are caught with the pole and line method. Oh, true, because then you yeah. just, like, there's there's no chance for bycatch. Exactly. So instead of a giant net that catches everything, it's just one person catching one thing, you know, on their one hook. <laughs> so that's a good way to ensure that there's a low bycatch rate. Um, and then you can also look for seafoods that don't require any of that kind of fishing, like shellfish. Yeah, exactly. Not yeah. to mention all the invasive shellfish that you could... Uh, Really go out into the lot and grab yourself if you know what you're doing. Yeah, exactly. Looking at you so eating like, shore crabs. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> and green crabs, too. You can eat those. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, like, farmed shellfish, there is no bycatch. They literally collect them by hand. Um, and they put them in, like, they put them in their own nets that things cannot get into. Yeah. So... Ooh, not to mention, uh, this is a good opportunity to bring up integrated multi-tropic aquaculture. Hell yeah. 
Oh, I love that. It's a really fun word, first of all, but it basically uh, farms things like shellfish, seaweed, and other things at the same time, which creates a natural system where they're using the waste products of each other. So it's very, very, very much less waste for the exactly. same products. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, bycatch is still a problem, but there are things you can look for to make sure that you're not a part of that problem. Um, Poland line, farmed shellfish, and again, looking for those sustainability ratings from the uh, Marine Stewardship Council. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right, moving forward. Um, Seaspiracy really underplays the problem of plastic pollution and claims that plastic pollution, that uh, 80% of it is from um, fisheries debris. Uh, that statistic is taken from one study that was done in 1980. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Before the plastics boom. Part of doing this episode was not doing any of the research myself so I could react blind to it. And I, there were so many of the things in the movie that showed up as very fishy to me. This one lit up like fire. <laughs> fishy. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So plastic pollution is a huge problem. Um, and contrary to the film's claim, 80% um, of plastics in the ocean do not come from fisheries. Uh, that was true in the 80s, but nowadays, like, everything and its mother is made of plastic. So the most plastic in the ocean comes uh, from things that we throw away on land. So, like, soda bottles, food packaging, tires, all of that stuff. Only about 20% comes from fisheries. Which, again, like, going back to what you said about the minimizing numbers is still a big number. But, like, that, like the problem with... You saying with that. That movie. was going to be my next point. Yes, abandoned fishing gear is still a problem. 20% is still a big number. And especially like abandoned fishing nets, which we call ghost nets in mm -hmm. the industry, um, are a huge problem because obviously stuff that's designed to catch fish will continue to catch fish even after it's abandoned. Um, but it is problematic that these uh, filmmakers really minimized... They basically characterize the attempts to reduce land-based plastic pollution as trivial and as like targeting the wrong source, which it's not. <laughs> no, not at all. Yeah, it's it is the main source. It kind of felt like it. he was also trying to say that he's the only one doing the beach cleanups. Oh my god, that was he was like, I go out every day and I pick up plastic, and the problem isn't solved. Of course it's not. You're doing it by yourself, you idiot. <laughs> you are one person. You are not a god. Please calm down. Anyway, yeah. sorry. <laughs> I I made the comments, so no problem. You want to get more plastic out of the ocean? How about instead of filming yourself picking up plastic by yourself, you start a like you start a community that does beach cleanups every week. Like you get more people involved. You write to the main contributors of plastic pollution in your area, like the restaurants or the big box companies that are creating most of that plastic and tell them you want them to do less. Use your voice in the community. Don't just try to do something yourself and then get really sad because it didn't work to save the whole world. Stop that belly again, you bro. overgrown baby. <laughs> I like how little you're sugarcoating it. I am mad. <laughs> mad at him. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So um, the best thing to do to reduce plastic pollution in the ocean is to target um, the companies that are creating so much plastic, Anything? not to target fishermen. No. Yeah. Fishermen are just trying to make a living. Exactly. All right. Moving on. 
Seaspiracy claims there is no such thing as sustainable fishing. Full stop. <laughs> there is. Yeah, there is. There absolutely um, is. If you want to support sustainable fisheries, you can download several apps that will help you do so. The Monterey Bay Aquarium has Seafood Watch, which is a really great resource. It's updated every day to tell you what fish are sustainable and locally sourced in your area each day. Some examples of fisheries that are very well managed and always do things sustainably include the European hake fishery, the yellowtail flounder fishery in the Grand Banks. Love me some flounder. Yeah, there are fisheries that have worked really, really hard, worked with scientists, worked with environmental organizations to make sure that the way they catch fish is not hurting the ocean, it's not affecting the population of the fish that they catch, and supporting those fisheries is really important because that's positive reinforcement. If those fisheries are the ones that most people are sourcing from, then that sends a message to fisheries that are doing things illegally, doing things unsustainably, that the way to make it in this business is to be sustainable. Absolutely. Like, fight to break down capitalism, but in the meantime, use it to your benefit. Exactly. Exactly. All right. I don't think we need to talk more about that because we've talked about it a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so here's a lot of the, the claims that are made in the film that have like numbers attached to them and sound really official are just like blatantly false. So I pulled out, there's so many of them, we can't go over all of them, but here's one that I pulled out. Um, they made a claim that 250,000 sea turtles are killed by fisheries in U.S. waters each year. So I went to this study that was cited. It's from Duke University. And they found that 250,000 loggerhead and 60,000 leatherback sea turtles are estimated to be inadvertently snared at each year by commercial longline fishing globally. Oh, so absolutely not just in the U.S. Nothing to do with the U.S. Um, they, the data they collected was from 13 different nations. Um, the U.S. was one of them. Um, but they found in this study that the U.S. only account for about 2% of longline fishing ensnarements with, uh, with these turtles. So, in other words, a gross misrepresentation of the data. Yes, exactly. So mm -hmm. that just like gives you an example of how far these guys are willing to skew the data. It's it's pathological science at its core. Yeah. I know I keep saying it, but that's like it matches it so well. Mm-hmm. So and then I did a little bit more research. I went to that the NOAA, the um National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, um, which is a really great source for data on um US fisheries. Um, because they manage it. Um, so they found that in the U.S., so fisheries through the U.S. have actually um, reduced their encounters with leatherback and loggerhead sea turtles by um, 65 and 90 percent, respectively, um, but looking at the NOA Fisheries Miami Laboratory and the Blue Water Fishermen's Association, just by um, switching from the traditional hooks for these longline fisheries to circle hooks. Oh, wow. That's, yeah. that, that's incredible. Yeah. So that just shows you that using science to change things in the fisheries to make them more sustainable is much more effective than just villainizing them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Stop barking at the problem, work to fix it. Exactly. Get rid of that hero complex. <laughs> Mr. Um, Solo plastic rubber. Yeah. <clears throat> all right. Another claim that they make is that companies that claim to certify sustainable seafood are actually working for the seafood industry. That's just not true. No. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. 
They are not. They are working to regulate the fishing industry. And just because they get money from their labeling does not mean that they are in the pocket of the fisheries. As we discussed earlier, that's just how they fund their regulations so they can hire more regulators. Mm -hmm. Um, It's like you said, they're not like they need money, so they have to make it somehow. Yeah. So (laughs) they literally claimed that um, organizations that certify sustainable seafood um, will certify pretty much any fishery that talks to them and wants to be certified. Um, Not true. So looking at going back to the Marine Stewardship uh, Certification, uh, Marine Stewardship Council, sorry, uh, 90% of the fisheries that apply to be certified by them are not certified. 90%. (laughs) That makes sense. Yeah. So like claiming that like anybody who walks up and says, hey, will you certify my fishery? They're like, sure. Like, no, nine out of 10, they do not certify. Just looking to prove his point again Mm -hmm. for the 18th millionth time. Yeah. Um, mm, So bad. All right. Jack, you can't. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So another claim, uh, going back to your multi-trophic aquaculture, Another claim that Seaspiracy makes is that all fish farms um, feed the fish that they farm um, with overfished stocks, that they all ubiquitously cause pollution, and that they are all riddled with disease. Oh, oh, yeah, it's fun how that works then. All of this they base on one salmon farm in Scotland. And they, yeah, they did. Yeah, yep, so Scottish salmon farms are literally known by pretty much everyone working in conservation, um, that they're atrocious. <laughs> they're the worst ones. Um, however, they are just one place. Um, they do it really bad in Scotland. They do. The, the salmon farms in Scotland are really, really bad. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is reflected in the fact that they are not certified by any NGOs. Um, if you look on like Seafood Watch or any of the organizations that try to help consumers make good, good decisions, no matter where you go, they're rated as red, as in bad. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, why not mention um, that, bud? Yeah. So there are good salmon farms out there, specifically the ones that use multi-trophic aquaculture, which you talked about earlier. Um, you can also look for salmon that's farmed with indoor recirculation tra- tanks with wastewater treatment. <laughs> hey, there you go. Yeah. Um, another fishery that they go, all of this is bad because of this one example, uh, is shrimp. I do remember that. Yes. Yeah. So, um, shrimp farming is really problematic and salmon and shrimp are one of those big three, um, that you can avoid if you want to avoid overfishing because they're like, there's a lot of bad examples when it comes to shrimp and salmon. Mm -hmm. And the shrimp farms that farm in mangroves are super problematic because they wipe out the mangroves. They're horrific. However... There are places where you can get sustainable shrimp. Of course there are. Because if we can eat it, there's a sustainable way of doing it. Yeah. Um, So some examples in the U.S., um, we have a really sustainable freshwater prawn and white leg shrimp um, industries. They all use indoor recirculation tanks with wastewater treatment. So they're not going into natural environments and corrupting them. They're not adding pollution. They're literally buildings. <laughs> they do things just self-contained. So um, it's really important to look for sustainably sourced shrimp because there are so many bad shrimp farms out there. But it's important to hold that nuance. Not all of them are bad. And by supporting the good ones, we help change things. We help improve the practices of fish farming. I need to carry a big flashing sign that says not a black and white issue. Yeah, nothing is a black and white issue, y'all. Um, y'all. Y'all. <laughs> I'm from Texas now. <laughs> 
Michigan. But a lot of people in Michigan say y'all. I don't know why. But, you know, you're well within your rights. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, all right, so oh I could gosh. go on for many more hours about all my problems with this film. Um, but I... I think we can wrap up because, you know, not everyone has a three hour attention span. Uh, I certainly don't. Um, <laughs> so I'll give you another quote from that Vox article by the lovely Daniel Polly. He says, ultimately, this is a movie that forces the problems of global fisheries through a small privileged lens to make Europeans and North Americans who can give up fish feel guilty enough to do so. Unfortunately, much of the other 80% of the planet will continue to eat fish because many will not even know about nor be able to afford a wholesome vegan diet. The message I wish the filmmakers had conveyed instead is that pushing for legislative changes and improved enforcement of existing laws is the best way to get involved. Just like the fight against tobacco in enclosed public places was won by smoking bans, not by appeals to smokers, the fight against illegal fishing and other shenanigans of the fishing industry will be won by political actions directed at governments and corporations, not appeals to vegans in New York, London, or Vancouver. <laughs> oh, like that. make decisions to shape the oceans and 90 percent of the global fish catch is governed by just 30 countries and the european union better policies can rebuild fisheries the problem we face really is that not enough people are involved in helping to push for better decisions and better policies so if you are financially comfortable and you can afford uh, and have access to seafood in your diet with sustainable and plant-based alternatives then do that but individual choices are simply not going to result in the change we want to see. So take action, join an NGO that's fighting for change, and literally write letters to your representatives. Use your voice in the world. Um, and for anyone who's still like, mm, actually, everyone going vegan would solve the problem. If you haven't been convinced by the fact that not everyone has access to veganism, here's just a little statistic that I'll leave you with from a woman named Ayana Elizabeth Johnson. Ah, oh, we know her. Um, so, do you know what percentage of the U.S. identified as vegetarian 20 years ago, Jared? Uh, 32? You think 32% of the U.S. identified as vegetarian 20 years ago? You just laughed at me, so 10. <laughs> There's not that many vegetarians out there. It's 5%. Oh, wow. Okay. Jeez. 20 years ago, when there was no messaging telling everyone to go vegan, about 5% of the U.S. identified as vegetarian. Now, as we know, in the last 20 years, tons and tons of messaging has gone out trying to convince people to go vegan and go vegetarian. So now, in 2021, what percent of the U.S. do you think identifies as vegan or vegetarian? Six? Still 5%. Still 5%. Okay. <laughs> so basically, those people are having kids and uh, telling them not to and no one else is changing. Exactly. I, appealing to individuals is just never the answer. No. No. Also, another fun statistic for you, for every five people who go vegetarian, four of them switch back to eating meat within a year. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah, it's really hard for people to change their diets. Like, literally, it's so personal. And pretending that changing your diet is the biggest, like, political action you can take is just ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. Relying yeah. on millions of people to change their diets and then stick to it forever is just a really silly strategy. <laughs> Yeah, not really grounded in reality. <laughs> There's no historical precedent for it. It's not going to work. So the energy that you're pushing to convince all of your friends to go vegan and vegetarian, stop bullying your friends, 
and turn your attention towards the government and the corporations. As I said earlier, the people who are killing the planet have names and addresses, and they're not your friends. (laughs) They're billionaires and government officials. Now, not to say that eating rich people is a sustainable source, because they will run out eventually, but that wouldn't exactly be a bad thing. Yeah, I mean, if you can afford to stop eating seafood, perhaps replace that part of your diet with the flesh of the rich. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, kids. That would be a much more impactful choice. (laughs) (laughs) And we always circle back to cannibalism. Ah, yes. Um, I hope nobody listening actually thinks that I'm a cannibal. I'm not. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm not a cannibal. I just, um, (laughs) cannibalism, like so many other things, has been used as a tool for colonialism for centuries. Mm -hmm. So, um, stop the stigma. (laughs) Not to mention the whole invention of the word cannibalism was a bastardization of a people from from the caribbean called the carib people i believe that people started calling cannibs and then cannibalism that's correct um that's just so all right well i hope if to those of you who are still listening um i hope you'll tell your friends who bring up seaspiracy that it's all tell them to listen to this episode or read the article which we'll post in the show notes um, if they're not podcast people. And they can also go over and see what our host, Science and Pictures, has said about it as well. Very yeah. good. Yeah. All right. Um, that was a pretty, uh, pretty fun squash and nonsense session. I don't... I regret watching this movie, and I still... Uh, we're going to have a little talk about this at the end of the end. <laughs> no, no, I'm just kidding. I'm glad we did this. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, Jared's still mad at me for making you watch the movie. That's how bad it is. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not mad at you anymore. I am mad, though. Yeah. Um, if any of you guys are mad, use that energy and just, like, furiously type some letters. Um, you can write to Netflix like I did and tell them <laughs> to take this out of the documentary category because it's not a documentary. It's very mm-hmm. misleading. Um, you can also write to your representatives and tell them you want them to support science-based fisheries management. Um, specifically right now, if you're in New England, another thing you can support is ropeless fishing because that helps protect whales. Yes, indeedy. Um, and you can do some research and look up what companies are actually behind industrial fishing. And when people start to bring up or tell you that you're a problem because you're not vegan, you can give them the facts. Problem is the capitalist, uh, the, the, the mindset. Exactly. All right. Well, I'm going to use the anger that I have cultivated while squashing this nonsense. Um, no, I'm not. I'm going to go do yoga. <laughs> <laughs> I'll write a congressman or two. Oh, not to mention, for, for a lot of those things, there were like scripts of, uh, offered by a lot of nonprofits online that all you really have to do is sign your name to for, for, for a lot of the stuff. So do your research, folks. There's a lot of them out there. Yeah, that's true. I'll find some specifically um, that are good and we'll put them on the Instagram. So uh, if you want to see some petitions you can sign and some sample scripts for what you can say to legislators to tell them to support science-based fisheries management and actually help improve the problem of overfishing, check out our Instagram. We're going to post them there. Our Instagram is science underscore in underscore podcast. We're on there. Um, You can also find us on Facebook, Science and Podcast. Um, and then if you've made it this far and you like this podcast, you can help more people find us by leaving us a review, by leaving us a rating, and just by subscribing. The more subscribers we get, the more ratings, the more reviews, the more will pop up when people search for us. And we're just a baby podcast. So please do that. Also, 
we made a promise last week that if someone ever did leave us a review, we would read that review live on the podcast. And I'm so happy to say we got our first review, Jared. Whoop, whoop. Oh, I'm sorry, but I just woke up both dogs next to me. (laughs) (laughs) So um, we did already post the review on the Instagram. That's how excited we are about it. Oh, whoops. We did already post the review on our Instagram. That's how excited we are about it. Um, But I also want to read it here because I promised. Yeah, All right. So this review is from a user called MMA403. Love you, MMA403. Um, The review is five stars. Yay. It says amazing stuff with three exclamation points. Um, And it is as follows. I am a big, dumb science dummy, and I love this podcast. This pod explains sciencey topics so well in an interesting, easy, digestible way. I am learning and it's fun. Highly recommend 10 out of 10. That warms my heart, man. Thank you, Ramon. That warms my heart so much. It's exactly what we're trying to do here. You don't have to be a scientist to enjoy this podcast. Nah, bro. No. But, you know, hopefully if you're listening and you, you know, haven't chosen a career yet, maybe go into science. Yeah. And your voice to it. We need more diversity in science. Yeah. Always. Always. All right. Love y'all. Please keep listening. Please wrap us to your friends. Don't feel bad if you're not vegan. And... Take some community level actions. Okay, goodbye. Eat the rich.